0: Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, the book of Joshua. I'll be reading Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness of this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, Joshua. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Let's pray. Father, may we hear Oh, and as we do through the clarity of the historical work of your Son, Jesus Christ, may we hear the beauty of this mercy that you spoke to Joshua. May we see in his life and in the people of Israel throughout this book our lives and the victory that you have promised as we battle on. So help me unfold these glorious, wonderful, merciful, powerful truths to your children through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The human being, the human soul, is restless. So without rest, until it finds its rest in the promised land, until it finds its rest in its maker. This, this unsettledness, this uneasiness within all of us yearns. For meaning. Because true rest can't be separated from meaning. What is the meaning of my self-consciousness? What is the meaning of my existence? And the essence of meaning is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the door into the Father's arms. He's the means of actual forgiveness and pardon from all of our sins and that which has separated us from our Creator. And that's why when He, the Creator of the universe, became a human being, He said and He says to every Person in this room. Come. Come unto me. All you who are heavy laden, you're, you're like an ox and you're burdened down with stress and work and searching and yearning. Come unto me and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. If we trust in Him, if we trust in the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then all of our enemies will be defeated, including our greatest enemy, death. Eventually, down the road. So this is week 21 in our series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And we have seen over the last number of weeks in the books of Moses, the exodus out of Egypt, and then the wandering and wandering and wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because of God's judgment on that generation who refused to trust Him. And they have finally died out and God has brought the children of Israel. Boy, if, you have, if you've got a map in your head, they're in Egypt and Sinai here and you can see the Dead Sea here and then the river goes all the way up to Sea of Galilee. That Jordan River, He's brought them around to the right of the Dead Sea in the plains of Moab. Moses has just died on Mount Nebo. And so they're positioned To go into the land, which is right there on the other side of the Jordan. Just opposite of this walled city of Jericho. No one's chasing them. Like 40 years earlier when they're being chased by the Egyptian army and God miraculously opens up the Red Sea to save them. And then wiped out the enemies in that sea. Here there's no one chasing them. They could take their time they could build rafts they can get all of these hundreds of thousands of people over the river the river is not big it's not the mississippi but god wanted to do a miracle to stop the waters of the jordan miles up river until it's all now dry and they can walk right across into the land that god had promised over almost 500 years earlier to Abraham. and Isaac and Jacob, their forefathers. In the book of Joshua in the early chapters tells us there's three reasons why God wanted to do the miracle of stopping the water. The first reason was to put His stamp of approval on Joshua as Moses' successor. We read in chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel concerning the river and it being stopped up. So that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And the second reason He wanted to do it is so the children of Israel whom He said now go in and possess the land which is going to mean combat and battle. To give them confidence. Yes, God, the miracle worker, is with us. We see that in chapter 3, verse 10. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Jebusites, etc., etc. Why? By the stopping up of the river. And thirdly, He did it in order to freak out the enemy. That's in chapter 5 of Joshua. To cause their hearts to melt. They got spies. They know Israel's out there and all these people. They're nervous and they see the river stop and they walk right through. And so they cross over into this promised land finally after 500 years. And they camp at a place called Gilgal. And all the babies that were born during the wilderness, all the male babies born, were never circumcised. And so they have a big circumcising party. Consecration of the people of Israel. And I just love this part. And you know what they named that part? It was called the, the Hill of the Foreskins. Then they celebrated the Passover. And the next day, the manna from heaven stopped. And now they were eating off the fruit of the land of Canaan that God promised. And then Joshua then goes in, chapter 6, forward, to rehearse the battles. The conquest of the peoples who were possessing the land and the cities within Canaan. And so you see in chapter 6, the fall of Jericho. In chapter 7 then, a little bit of trouble with disobedience with Achan. But got rid of that problem. And then the city of Ai is captured. And then from Gilgal, which was the base, Joshua and all the armies of Israel... In chapters 9 and 10, it shows that they've conquered the whole southern part of Canaan. Chapter 11, they conquered the northern part of Canaan. And then, chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, all the way through chapter 21, it shows the dividing up of the land to the twelve tribes and where their borders are, where where Judah is and Benjamin and Issachar and Simeon and of these tribes that come from the twelve sons of Jacob of Israel. And then the climax comes in Joshua 21, verses 43 to 45. And thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers... And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, because the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises of the Lord or that the Lord had made to the house of Israel. Not one of those promises had failed. All came to pass. The book of Joshua ends on a triumphant note. But there is within the book of Joshua a strong hint of trouble which lay ahead, because they did not get rid of all the godless people of the land. They left a remnant. And so Joshua says, in chapter 23, verses 11 to 13, to the nation. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Let me pause for a moment. There's a picture here, I think. They left godless idolaters in the land. When you were mercifully grabbed by the Holy Spirit in new birth, put into Jesus Christ, change, you crossed the Jordan, God left you with enemies. Not just without, but Paul calls it, your flesh, your sinful nature. There will be a day of true rest. It's not yet. Be very careful, Joshua says, therefore to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and you cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And then Joshua's closes. And then, of course, Judges, and we see the early history, and then the Samuel's, and the Kings, and the Chronicles. We see the trouble, the constant battle of sin. We see victories again and again of God toward his faithful. This book of Joshua has been, for so many brothers and sisters over the centuries, highly encouraging. How come? Bloody. That's what I want to really get to this morning. Why that is and why that should be, it's for us. But first, I just need to deal with an elephant in the room. And so I will. Because often with atheists or agnostics or just religion haters or Christian or Jewish haters, particularly over the years, I would hear these persons call up on the radio programs I would be listening to and say, How can you believe in the Bible, this God, who He was behind genocide? He was behind the invasion of innocent people, and He had Israel slaughter them. That's a good challenge. So let me just first admit, absolutely, Joshua is a very bloody book. Violent. Secondly, it was not in self-defense. It was an invasion of people That was unprovoked. Which leads to the question, how could that be honorable in any way? How could that be justified? Even to the point in our scripture, it is praised. And God is praised for it. If any nation did that today, like Russia did a couple years ago in invading parts of the Ukraine, I'm utterly against it. Right or wrong, but that's where I stand, and I think I'm being just in that. If, if the nation of Israel today unprovoked invaded Egypt or invaded Jordan or Lebanon or Saudi Arabia, I would be utterly against it. This is how I deal with that issue. First, and this is for us believers, the period between Moses and the coming of Jesus is unique. During that period, the Creator, God, the Sovereign One, wanted his chosen people, Israel, to have a national form with land, with borders, to be a political and religious nation. And by doing that, one thing he did was to show, remember how the the book began? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He wanted to show, I own the land. I own everything. And it was a foretaste of what he promises his people, finally, that they, my people, will inherit, not just that little teeny speck on the planet called Israel, Canaan, but my people will inherit the entire earth. And also, by giving Israel, His people, the law with Moses, and now finally fulfilling the promise hundreds of years later, and giving them a plot of land on planet earth with borders to be their own people and to rule themselves. Oh, really, for God, who says, I want to rule over you. He now has them in a position of a type of prominence that will stand out historically so that, as we saw a few weeks ago, God could write the lesson book that He wants written as lessons to all the world when the gospel of Jesus Christ comes out. And so before Moses, after Christ, this idea of a national identity of God's people is not true. During that time, it was. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they had no land. They were sojourners. The gospel of Jesus comes and it goes to all peoples throughout the earth, no matter what background or culture. And there is no national identity of God's people. But they dwell throughout the earth as a spiritual kingdom. So that's the first. From Moses to Christ, it was a unique time. The second part of the answer is that what Israel did in going and attacking Jericho and attacking Ai and attacking the peoples and the town after town after town, and it was bloody, was not ultimately their own doing. It was God's doing. God gave them orders to do it. And throughout, God Himself, the Creator, the Sovereign, was fighting for them to give them the victory. As long as they obeyed. When they did disobey, He would make sure they get defeated. There. and Therefore, we must conceive historically of what happened here. Is that Israel was being used as a weapon in the hands of God the Creator to enact His judgments, His righteous judgments on the peoples of that land. Which leads to the third part of the answer. The destruction and the bloodshed of those nations of Canaan was not just to make room for Israel. It was a judgment on the wickedness of those nations which ran its course for a long time. And thus God's wrath was perfectly filled in time for him to bring judgment. Moses says it this way: In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. Israel, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you in the land of Canaan, do not say, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Don't say that. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Don't be surprised. You ever read the book of Habakkuk? Habakkuk, as the prophet of the Lord, tells Israel, this is what's going to happen to you now. I'm going to use the Babylonians. A sinful people. And I'm going to use them as my sword to bring judgment on you. Judah. He is God. He can do such things if he pleases. And he doesn't show partiality. So there are no such in God's eyes and from perfect justice from God there are no such things as innocent people alright I'm done as far as I'm going to go because I want to get to the goodies so why Why is the conquest over enemies, the enemies of Israel, with God leading them, why and how is that encouraging or instructive to us Christians today? We see them battle when you read, and we find inspiration for our own battle. New Testament's clear not with swords or guns or missiles not against flesh and blood but spiritual battles against spiritual entities against horrific doctrines and thinking in the the world of untruths and against our One at a time, individual and local communities, sin or our own flesh, we are constantly in battle. That's why it's encouraging. So in light of that, here's the larger question then that relates to us as Christians theologically as we contemplate the invasion of Israel in the book of Joshua. And that's this question. Was the conquest, was the success of that conquest dependent on Israel's obedience, their faith? Or or maybe not this question relates to us in this room in our everyday lives from here to the coffin. Particularly in light of this one sentence. I can use many, but I'm not going to do that in the New Testament. I'm going to take one sentence from Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. God chose you is the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you, Israel. Cross over the Jordan. Get your armies ready. And possess the land. He chose you to possess the land by defeating the enemies in Canaan. God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief. Through sanctification. It's Paul's big word for through the work that God will be doing in your life. From new birth, from being in Christ now, throughout your life until you die. Through you pursuing holiness. Through the battles against your flesh, against sin, against stupid thinking, bad doctrines. He chose you to be saved through sanctification, through pursuing and growing in holiness. That's what Paul says. So, okay, Paul, think about that. Is that growth in the Christian life of sanctification dependent on obedience in the Christian life? That's a tricky question. It is tricky. I mean, if you say it this way, it's easy. Is it true? Let's just assume Paul had some sanctification in his life. Okay, So, and he's, so he's dead, so he's done. He's waiting for the resurrection. Is it true that since his conversion to Jesus, Paul would have had that sanctification working in his life if he never obeyed? Of course not. Okay, that's easy. But what do we mean? What do we mean by dependent on? So, as we try to answer that question, I'm going to go back. And in, in, in hear the picture, because the book of Joshua and Israel possessing the land is much like a metaphor and a picture, a type, a shadow for us in the reality of our lives spiritually. So on the one hand, Moses says this in Deuteronomy 9.5. Again, we just heard it, but so hear it clearly then. And we should hear it for our life as Christians. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. So there's a sense in you say, not because of your righteousness, Christian, not because of your will, and I I, I turned left instead of right, I obeyed here instead of not, is the reason that you will be saved through sanctification. It's not. So, on the other hand, Moses says this, though, and you shall do what is right and good. In the sight of the Lord, so that, okay, got to get the connection, you will do what's right, so that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Or or, or very similarly, the way he talked to Joshua in chapter 1 that we just read. Joshua, be strong. Be very courageous. If Joshua was a wimp and didn't find any strength or any courage, would he have led the armies into victory? No. No. Be strong. Be very courageous. Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you may have good success wherever you go. So how do these texts fit together? Whether you're looking at historically, Israel taking the land or our lives as Christians every day. There will be no conquest. There will be no sanctification without obedience. In order to be successful, Joshua and Israel must be courageous and obey God and pay attention to the commandments He gave through Moses, His servant. And then they go and they possess and take the land, and city after city, and you get to the end of the book and they have rest. And thus, when that happens... Or what happens to one degree or another, to this week and next week and the next, you or they are never to say, it was because of my righteousness (laughs) that God drove out this besetting sin this week. Or drove out these nations. Do not say, it's because of my righteousness. Why? Because in a real sense, it was not at all because it was not the ground. It was not the, 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 the deepest down you can go foundation of why you took possession of the land, Israel. It wasn't. God, long ago, saw the wickedness of the peoples. Saw how it was going to continue to unfold. Knew He was going to judge them. Knew He was going to destroy them. Made a promise to Abraham knowing He's going to take His descendants and put them into the land. Joshua, Israel, Christian, long before you were ever born. Not maybe God will do it. Absolutely God will do it. The conquest of Canaan was decreed by God prior to any obedience in Israel. And it was part, therefore, of the certain promises He made to Abraham. So, so, let me say it this way. It seems that there's a sense in which the obedience of Israel, trusting in the Lord as they do battle against the peoples of the land. There's a sense that their obedience is the condition of the conquest. And there's a sense in which it's not the condition of the conquest. If I can put that in Paul's terms. There's a sense in which obedience is a precursor to what will happen in the resurrection, in the affirmation of the saved. He called you, chose you to be saved through a tunnel, will bring you to that day called the resurrection. And that tunnel is sanctification. There's a tunnel of obedience. But there's another sense in which if you take that to say, oh, I get it, my obedience will be the cause of my justification, forgiveness of sins, even ultimate salvation, then no, nope, not at all. It is a tunnel because that sanctification is the fruit and the evidence true faith, of justification that you already possess and therefore cannot lose. So say it again, with the invasion of Canaan obedience is not the condition it's not the condition of the conquest in the sense that God had already decreed That it would be. He already absolutely secured the possession of the land through his sovereign, it will be. And that's underneath which gives rise to the reality of how he will do it through the obedience of Israel. And so, no one's obedience, whether Joshua's or the people of Israel or any Christians, no one's obedience is what woke God up and moved God to say, oh, okay, I'll sanctify you then. It doesn't work that way. Okay, I'll give you the land. It doesn't work. But on the other hand, the obedience of Israel is the condition of the conquest in the sense that who those persons were that would participate in God's mercifully decreed event of possessing the land and dispossessing those people, well, that depends on who's courageous, who's obedient. So much so, that after they conquered Jericho, God gave specific instructions, do not take their stuff. But Achan couldn't resist, and disobeyed the Lord, took a bunch of junk and hid it in his tent. They go to Ai, "Ah, Joshua, 3,000 men will do, boom. And they got their bottoms whooped and ran away, lost a few men. He tore his clothes. What did you do, God, bring us here just to be destroyed? There's disobedience in the camp. And you're going to get defeated until you remove that from your midst. And then they did, and then they took Ai. The point is that obedience from a heart of faith is the condition for the successful conquest of the land in that sense. God has ordained that to be. So let me put it then this way to us believers. Every one of you who has come to cling to Jesus with saving faith, you know you believe. I believe. Every one of you, therefore, because of that faith, you are justified. Forgiven of your sins. Jesus' perfect righteousness. That's how God judges you now. He sees you as He sees his, His eternal Son in His true humanity as the second Adam. His righteousness is yours. Come to me and you too. Abba. You're justified once for all, and you can never be unjustified. You were chosen to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So if you are justified, there is no way that you will not be saved through sanctification, by the Spirit, in belief, in the truth. Knowing that, the book of Joshua ought to be just thrilling to us prayerfully as we meditate. That's my Father. His faithful. Joshua, there's a good model. Caleb, he's a good model. Because they're chosen too. And so, how do I as a pastor take these lessons from Joshua way back then, this historical book, physically, with bloody battles, apply it to us Christians today. I'm not left thank goodness, to my own creativity to try to do that. Because the Holy Spirit, through the writer to the Hebrews, has already done it. So, I want you to turn there. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 4. Here's the writer, most likely preacher. This is most likely A sermon. And so, he's writing to Christians. And he's exhorting us believers to continue, continue, and continue to trust in the Lord. So I'll begin at verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest... Christian, it still stands. And while that promise still stands for you this day, let us fear. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach that rest. Because good news came to us just as it came to them. Israel, under Moses in the wilderness, when God was saying, take the land and possess it and find your rest. Good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who heard. And so they fell dead in the wilderness before God would take the others over into the land of rest. For we, believers, we Christians who have believed, we enter that rest. As He has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so up to this point, the writer clearly notices Joshua chapter 21, verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest. On every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. So he sees that. But the writer also saw the rest of the book of Joshua and saw the book of Judges, and he realized that this rest that Joshua and the people of Israel were given was not a perfect rest. It was utterly imperfect. It was not long-lasting. Enemies remained in the land and soon the people were led astray into idolatry again and again and again and again. Read Judges. And so he sees this is clearly not the final fulfillment of the promise to Abraham to his seed Joshua's conquest is a partial fulfillment of the promise but he sees and those of you who know the book of Hebrews as he sees almost everything in the old testament in the lesson book as types as shadows as pictures Sees lamb slain on the day of atonement by the high priest. Yes, and he sees. Not the real. It's a shadow. You may not see the real person coming around the corner of that building, but you see a shadow first late in the afternoon. Someone's coming behind that because I see a shadow. And that lamb pointed to the Lamb of God. And we can go to the priesthood and on and on. And that's what he does in the book of Hebrews. And he sees the rest in the book of Joshua as a shadow, as a picture of something greater that is yet to come. But not only that, the writer, he's flipping through his Bible, well, I'm sorry, his scroll, and he lands upon Psalm 95, which was hundreds of years after the book of Joshua. And he reads this from Psalm 95, starting with verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah. Means the place of quarreling. Just stop for a moment. Israel comes out of Egypt, you remember? And they just murmured and we're thirsty and complain and unbelief. And they're at the big rock. And God's going to have water flow out of that rock. That's there, the place of quarreling. He, says, he goes on in the psalm. As on the day of Massah, which means testing, on the day of testing in the wilderness... For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So there's a song. It comes In around the year 960 probably. Hundreds of years after the conquest of Canaan. And what that implies to the writer, because it's right there in the psalm, is that God's rest, even several hundred years after Joshua's time, is still available. It's available to those who turn from a hard heart and hear. Hear God. Meaning, pay attention to. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart, but believe. Let it soften. And so the Hebrew writer says to Christians then, in this sermon in Hebrews, the rest that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants was tasted by Joshua and Israel after the conquest, but just tasted there in Canaan. That rest, Christian, in the first century or the 21st century is still available to those who believe, to those who listen. Trust the Lord, who trust the gospel, the good news. That's what he's saying. Now I just want you, to just, just hear the preacher preach. I'm going to pick up in verse 5 and go through verse 11 and listen to this part of his sermon to the church. And again, in this passage, referring to Psalm 95, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, He appoints a certain day. What day is that? He says, look at the text. It's right there. It's this word. Today. If you're not dead, if you're not lying in a coffin, and just your body's there, then it is pointing at you today. Saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, Christians, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works. As God rested from His works. Here's here's his take home. Let us, therefore, today strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So remember dear Christian the way Paul said it clearly in Galatians chapter 3 it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to promise. Whether the promise we read in Genesis made to Abraham, rehearsed again and again throughout Exodus through Deuteronomy and in the book of Joshua, or even as, as, as the writer to the Hebrews opened up that glorious sermon, didn't he? Yes. In many different ways, and at many different times, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, that same God became a human being and spoke to us through. His son. And that son repeats that promise to everyone in this room. Come unto me. Come unto me. You who are in touch with the purposelessness feeling of your souls. Heavy laden, burdened, come to me, Jesus. And here's the promise. And I will give to you rest, rest, true rest. For every believer that comes and finds that rest. We all have tasted. Say tasted on purpose. We have tasted. A foretaste. Of the everlasting rest. But it's just a taste. But we have tasted. Those. Amazing promises by God the Holy Spirit that brings a peace of rest that we didn't have before. It surpasses all understanding. And then, in the future, in the age to come, there's a perfect rest. In the new heavens, in the new earth, There's a rest in which we will be absolutely free from all the enemies of the flesh. Sin, pain, guilt, uncertainty. So dear Christian, rejoice over this because if the first Joshua was victorious over the enemies of God, how much more the new Joshua See, if you don't know that, Jesus has the same name. Yeshua. Yeshua. Everything about the conquest of Canaan was written for our sake. It was written in order to train us, to teach us, to look at it and say, Yes, I'll do do battle today against the enemy. Sin. I'll do battle in the earth against the enemies, against the gospel of untruths in philosophy and culture and theology. And in all those battles we see in Joshua, we see reflected the conquest of Jesus over the enemy, not of Jericho, but our sin not of Ai, but our guilt and death and hell. With the blow that was struck at the cross of Jesus, we know the Lord has given us the land. So I say with the writer to the Hebrews, let us therefore strive to enter That rest, the rest of trusting in our Father, the rest of trusting in the Gospel, the rest of hating our heart that does not want to trust. The rest that comes from actually praying, instead of religiously, okay, I pray, The rest that comes from communing. The rest that that is desperate. Oh God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Now, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall or seem to fall by the same sort of disobedience. Father, thank you. Thank you for your glorious, wonderful lessons that you have provided throughout the lesson book, the Hebrew Scriptures. We thank you for our great Joshua, our great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you who began a good work in us, who chose us to be saved, You will complete it to the end, for you chose us to be saved through sanctification by the Holy Spirit, who will not fail, and thus providing our hearts with belief, faith, trust in the truth, to the glory of your name, amen.